This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for December 3rd, 2020. How new security features in Big Sur might be a problem. Amazon opens a Wi-Fi sidewalk. Plus, Kirk tells us his experiences with Apple's newest MacBook Air featuring Apple Silicon. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. So, Josh, did you buy anything on Black Friday or Cyber Monday? You know, I actually didn't this year. <laughs> really? You know, I... I I checked. I looked for some deals and I, I kind of browsed through. I usually kind of take a look and see what Amazon is offering. And there wasn't really anything that stood out to me. Um, my wife did pick up a few things. Uh, she she happened to notice that there was something that we had on one of our wish lists that went on sale. And so she grabbed that and she said, you can just give this to me for Christmas this year. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, dear. <laughs> 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 so, uh, but yeah, I, I didn't really see anything that stood out to me. Um, obviously, we, uh, we should mention that we've still got our um, Intego sale ongoing. Um, last week, if you if you listen to the ad in the middle of the program, you you know that we had a special offer of sixty five percent off for Black Friday, and we've actually extended that offer beyond Cyber Monday, so it's going all the way through, I believe, this Saturday. Um, so if you're listening to this on Thursday or Friday or Saturday, you should be able to still get, uh, that same deal as part of our cyber week promotion. And there'll be an advertisement about midway through the podcast. Yep. Well, I've got some new stuff and we're going to talk about it in the second half. I got a new, uh, MacBook air, but I want to start with a listener question. I got an email from a listener to the podcast in Canada who wrote me in French because he had heard me mention on the podcast that I speak French, and he didn't want to write such a complicated email in English. So if anyone does want to write in French, feel free. I do understand French. He was pointing out that he was looking in Disk Utility, and there's this weird-looking volume, and it's named com.apple.os.update, followed by all these weird letters and numbers. And this is actually, he was worried that this might be some sort of security issue. This is actually a feature, not a bug. In the newest version of macOS, Big Sur, there is a new, what would we call it, a security feature. It's called a signed system volume. In macOS Catalina, when you installed the operating system, your startup volume would be cut in two. One would be called Macintosh HD dash system, assuming you keep the default name Macintosh HD. The second would be Macintosh HD dash data. And the system volume had a certain number of protection and the data included applications and all your personal files. Now you still have that data volume, but the system volume has been renamed with this really weird name. And I understand that people would see this name and worry about it. You know, why would this funny name be here? It looks like the name of a preferences file or something. But this is the way it works. There is, uh, we'll link to a Apple developer article from June. So I think some things have changed since then. But it talks about how Big Sur adds strong cryptographic protections to store system content on a signed system volume. Um, essentially, if 
something in that volume gets altered, the signature of the volume is not approved and you can't boot your system. The only way that you could work with your Mac again is by restoring it with a new uh, installation. Right. And the idea behind this is that Apple wants to ensure that you don't have some really deeply embedded malware uh, that's causing major problems for your system. That's that's really, I think, the main reason why they're choosing to uh, to go about it this way. Um, because if you think about it, something like a rootkit, something that gets down at a really deep level in the operating system um, could bypass all security measures and uh, and and be very difficult to detect even. Um, And if something like that were to get written to your system volume, then, you know, again, it it could bypass no matter what kind of security uh, you had implemented in software. Um, And so I think Apple's intent here is, uh, is to, to try to further make it difficult for malware to get in at a deep level into your operating system without it really throwing a lot of, major red flags and forcing you to have to restore the operating system. Of course, this leads to some complications. We both use software called Audio Hijack from a developer named Rogue Amoeba. What it allows you to do is to record any audio on your Mac. So in my case, I'm recording the audio that goes in through my microphone and my mixer. I'm also recording the Skype audio in case something happens to your recording on your Mac. And this is common. Most podcasters do this. Audio Hijack installs a, a bit of software called ACE, Audio Capture Engine. It's it's just basically like an audio plugin. But the problem is that now under Big Sur, you can't really install this normally. We're going to link to a tutorial on the Rogue Amoeba uh, website to show what you have to do. You have to reboot your Mac in recovery mode. You have to open the startup security utility. You have to change the security policy to reduced security. Then you have to reboot again to be able to install this. Now, notwithstanding that this is incredibly complicated, what worries me about this is that if users get used to having to do this, and you won't have to do this for a lot of apps, but apps that want to record audio, video, maybe do other things, if users get used to doing this for normal apps, can they get tricked into doing this for malware as well? That's exactly the problem is that, uh, you know, typically we see things like Trojan horses. Trojan horses are uh, probably the most common type of malware on the Mac. And um, most often, for whatever reason, uh, bad guys who make malware try to make it look like a Flash player installer or Flash updater. This is really kind of amusing because we're getting to the point where Flash Player is just about dead. I mean, at the end of this month, Adobe has said for years that they're not going to release any more security updates, uh, any more bug fix updates. It's dead as of the end of December 2020. Yet malware makers are still primarily pretending to be Flash Player. Um, and so they they have these Trojan horses. They They have websites, first of all, that look like they are a a website notifying you that your flash player is out of date and they trick you into downloading it. And then when you run that installer or updater, um, what's actually doing is installing malware on your machine. So, um, 
certainly it is the case that if they're finding a degree of success in tricking people into downloading and installing Flash Player, even though it's not actually Flash Player, they could trick you into doing other things as well. So, um, you know, they could walk you through this process and claim even that it's Flash Player. If that happens to still be successful after December, you know, they could claim Flash Player now requires you to restart your machine and go through this whole elaborate process in order to get this working. You just made me realize that someone could try to convince people that the only way to get Flash Player to work is to do this. That Flash Player has officially been end of life, but that (laughs) there's a way to get around it if you install it like this. Now, the thing is, who really needs Flash Player other than what's that game website you keep mentioning? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> there's a cartoon website, homestarrunner.com, yeah. that I always like to go to. And, and, and there's a lot of, like, educational websites, uh, mostly kindergarten through second grade type um, games that uh, kids might want to play that are built in Flash. And there's not... They they some, some of these websites still haven't been migrated to something more modern like HTML5. Okay. Um, so remember, Flash is dead. But if you do uh, see an app that asks you to go through this process, be wary. Make sure it's a, a legitimate app. Amazon's doing a thing that we both agree isn't very cool. They've come up with something called Amazon Sidewalk. Uh, what it is, is it's a way to use some of your internet bandwidth and share it with other users of Echo products and Ring products. It will create what's called a sidewalk bridge connection at a certain frequency that's not used for other things. Essentially, Amazon's going to automatically turn this on on your Echo and Ring devices, and you can turn it off if you want, but is it going to be clear to everyone that they can turn it off? And sort of forcing someone to use something like this to open up their network in certain ways. We don't know how secure this is going to be. And also to use bandwidth. Um, You may have a bandwidth cap that could be a problem. This is really just wrong. Yeah, what's really crazy about this is that Amazon actually sent this notification to customers last week. And they said that, or they they implied that this is all going to be on by default. Because the, the exact wording that they used is, Sidewalk is coming to your Echo device later this year, but you can disable this feature at any time from the Amazon Alexa app. So that makes it sound like this is going to be a feature that's enabled by default. Amazon says that the Sidewalk Bridge functionality will allow certain devices, they say, such as ring cameras and Echo products to be able to connect to this Wi-Fi. So if, for example, maybe you don't have a really strong Wi-Fi signal at the front of your house where you've got your ring doorbell installed, but maybe your neighbor has a much stronger signal from where your doorbell is, then theoretically it could hop on their Wi-Fi and, um, and, and that in itself is not necessarily a security concern because all of the communication to your ring device should be encrypted. But where, as you mentioned, this is kind of more of a concern is for, for one thing, yeah, there's bandwidth utilization and Amazon doesn't necessarily know whether you might have a bandwidth cap because of your internet service provider or how close you are to reaching your cap. Amazon would have no way of knowing that. Um, but then the other thing is this kind of makes you wonder if certain devices can connect to this special sidewalk bridge network, uh, 
how long is it going to be before somebody else figures out how to exploit this and break into anyone's sidewalk bridge and get, you know, and be able to use anybody's uh, Wi-Fi network if they just walk down the street and find somebody who happens to have uh, a device with sidewalk enabled. So hopefully Amazon will get some feedback from customers that tell them, you know, we really don't think this should be enabled by default. And um, with any luck, (laughs) this won't be something that they'll globally enable. And uh, so if you are concerned about this, you might want to let Amazon know. Okay, we got news of an extraordinary hack. You know, we usually talk about the fact that if there's a vulnerability on an iPhone or a Mac, that someone needs physical access. But here, um, a security researcher at Google's Project Zero has published a 30,000-word blog post. We'll link to that. We'll also link to a summary on Mac Rumors, talking about an exploit that could let hackers remotely access nearby iPhones. And this went over at Wi-Fi, and it uses a couple of things like a Raspberry Pi, etc. This was patched back in May, so it's... I would assume that most people have updated their phones to protect against this. I don't know if older devices can't be updated for this. It's a pretty scary hack because it really does seem to cut through that sort of remote physical access um, barrier that we've always imagined for these things. Yeah, this was discovered by a researcher named Ian Beer, who works for Google's Project Zero. And um, Ian, by the way, is uh, is a great amazing security researcher. Like he's come up with all kinds of really clever things. Um, He's actually spoken at the Objective by the Sea conference in the past. Um, And this is a really, really cool hack. So basically what he discovered was he, uh, first of all, in 2018, Apple actually released an iOS beta version that Apple accidentally shipped without stripping out some of the function names And so he was able to sort of figure out a lot of context about how things work in the operating system that normally just would not be available to people. And so he kind of has has been keeping an eye on that. And he did a bunch of um, investigative work. And he found out that Apple Wireless Direct Link, or AWDL, um, had a, a vulnerability and he said that he was able to exploit this vulnerability using a laptop and a Raspberry Pi, which is which is sort of a, a little device that you can plug into a network, um, and and a couple of Wi-Fi adapters. So it took him six months to develop this exploit, um, but by the time that he was done, he w- he could hack into any iPhone, and this would also be uh, any iPad or iPod Touch as well that was in the vicinity. So if it was in radio proximity, he could hack into it. So what exactly does that mean that he could hack into it? He could run arbitrary code on it. He could steal all the user data. So some of the things that that he could obtain would be uh, their their photos. Um, He could even potentially get um, uh, cryptographic keys and passwords stored in the keychain. He could get their emails, their messages. Basically, he could get anything that he wanted to, any data that was on this phone. Um, so this is, this is like an amazing attack, like incredible that he was able to figure this out. You can't do better than this, can you? No, this is like, again, you have to have relative proximity. This is not something, thankfully, that you could exploit over the internet. 
No, but you could be in the next office or the next room or in a hotel um, in the room adjacent to someone else. Yeah, we've often mentioned that if you have physical access to a device, then all bets are off. But this isn't even requiring physical access. You could just be near somebody. You could be there, you know, across, uh, you know, the, the next house over or another room if it's, you know, at a, in an office building or something like that. And you or on the still- same bus or subway car. Yes, exactly. Um, And we've mentioned before that when I've gone to, I think, RSA conference in San Francisco, if I'm taking the train there uh, and I take a look at uh, who I can airdrop to, there's like 50 people that all have airdrop enabled for everyone. And I'm like, wow, people just don't secure their devices. Well, okay. So in this case, as long as you're running the latest version of iOS, you're safe. So if you've got iOS 14 point, whatever they're up to now, um, you're safe. If you've got the latest version of iOS 12, even Apple did release a patch for that. So this is iOS 12.4.7 or later will have this fix implemented. Now, it's important to note that some older iOS devices cannot be upgraded to iOS 12 or iOS 14. And that's where this is still a problem. And we talked about that in last week's episode about Black Friday. If you see a cheap deal on an iPhone 6, don't buy it because you can't upgrade it to a a more recent operating system. And this is just one of the many security vulnerabilities that it's going to have. Right, exactly. Yeah. So so an iPhone 6 can't be upgraded to iOS 14. Um, An iPhone uh, 5C or or similar generation or anything older than that, you're not going to be able to upgrade to a new enough version of iOS. You're certainly not going to get the newest version. And in some cases, you may not even be able to get iOS 12, which it does seem like Apple is still patching major vulnerabilities for at this point. Um, we'll see how long Apple does continue to do that. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the new MacBook Air. If you missed our Black Friday sale, we've got great news for you. We've extended our extra special offer through this Saturday, December 5th. First-time buyers of Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9, the ultimate Mac protection and utility suite, can get an incredible 65% savings. Use the special promo link in the show notes to take advantage of this limited-time offer. Tell your Mac-using friends and family or buy it for them as a holiday gift. To get 65% off, remember to use the Cyber Week promo link in this episode's show notes. And while you're there, you can also find a great deal on Intego Antivirus for Windows. Intego, makers of the best protection software for Mac and now for Windows, too. Okay, I told you I got the new MacBook Air. Um, I decided to get the cheapest one. So here's here's the way I use my Macs. My main work is an iMac, and I've always had a secondary Mac, which I use for testing, um, which I use to set up user accounts for screenshots and special projects. And sometimes I want to just work in a different environment than on my desk, so I use it on my lap. But it's not a Mac that I do heavy work on. The new M1 Mac, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, this sounded really exciting, the way Apple was talking about how fast they are and the battery life, and I was a little bit skeptical, and particularly, I didn't want to spend a lot on a new Mac. I have an 18-month-old MacBook Pro, which I'm going to sell now, and I figured, what if I just buy the cheapest MacBook Air, $999, 8 gigs of RAM, 
Now, I can't remember the last time I had a Mac with only 8 gigs of RAM. I've always put extra RAM in because, as we all know, that's the thing that makes the most difference. But with everything I'd read about this, I thought I'd take a chance, and wow, I'm impressed. I don't do, you know, 4K video rendering on my computer, whichever computer it is. I do the kind of tasks that everyone does. I mean, in the past week, I've used this Mac a lot. I've written some articles. I've edited some photos. I've edited a podcast. I've done the basic type of work that's 95, 98% of people do. If you do 4K video rendering, don't even listen to this. You Actually, you might be surprised because you might actually be able to do some. I didn't test that. Um, but what I found is just in terms of speed, it all, all of the benchmarks that have been published show that it's faster than any Intel Mac. Remember, this is the cheapest Mac that's faster than the iMac Pro that was $5,000 when it came out. I think it's still sold at $5,000, isn't it? Even the emulation, we've talked about Rosetta, which is the code that allows non-Apple Silicon-specific apps to run in emulation, so Intel code um, can still run on these, is still faster than other Macs. Um, this is for single-core performance, right? So all Macs have multiple cores. This one has eight cores. Um, I think they all have eight cores, in fact, all the M1 Macs. Most of what we do is single-core. It's web browsing, it's email, it's Twitter, it's Instagram, whatever. Um, there's not that much we do that really exploits multi-cores, there's nothing in this Mac that's slow, whether it's opening apps, whether it's switching from app to app. Um, there's no lag anyplace. I'm really impressed. I haven't had one glitch with this. I haven't had one moment that suggested, do I regret buying the cheapest Mac possible? Really? That, that's interesting. I, I think a lot of people are, for the most part, having a really good experience. But it seems like most people say that there's one or two things that they just can't get working um, or, you know, they've had a little glitch here or there, but for the most part, it's working fine. So you've, you've had no issues with it. Okay. Well, the only thing I've, the only problem I have is sometimes my Apple watch won't unlock it, but I have that oh. on all my Macs from time to time. And basically everything needs to be restarted and that'll sort out, but nothing else. Everything is fine. Um, worth pointing out that they've got a new keyboard. Uh, I never had a problem with keyboards on my laptops, but so many people have, uh, you know, a certain key will stop working, for example. So this goes back to the scissor keyboard type, and it's redesigned. It does feel different. It feels a little stiffer than my other keyboards. I couldn't do my own benchmarks, and, and it's not really worthwhile because there are a lot of them. But what I did is I performed a few tasks that are relatively common on both my iMac and the MacBook Air. So my current iMac is two and a half years old. It's a 3.6 gigahertz quad-core Intel i7, has 16 gigs of RAM. It's above entry level, but it's the 21-inch model, so it's got integrated graphics, and it's not the best, but still. I started with Pixelmator Pro. If you don't know Pixelmator Pro, it's a photo editing app, which is doing some wonderful things with machine learning. One of them is if you take a, a small image, it can upscale it and make it look good. Instead of jaggies, you get sort of straight lines. So I took a, a 5,500-pixel image and downscaled it to 1,000 pixels across. Then on both my Macs, the iMac and the MacBook Air, I ran what they call the ML Super Resolution feature in Pixelmator Pro, and I clicked on both of them at the same time. When the MacBook Air was finished, the iMac was still at 38%. So basically, it's about three times as fast. Again, I can't time this exactly, um, but it seemed that that would be a good benchmark of real-world usage. Another thing I tried was I took a two gigabyte zip 
archive of photos. And when you unzip an archive, you've got two things going on. One is the speed at which the computer reads and writes the data onto the SSD or the hard drive. And the second is the processor. In fact, the processor is probably doing less work than the reading and writing. Um, it took a bit under 14 seconds to unzip that on the iMac and just over nine seconds on the MacBook Air. Now, that's for two gigabytes. If it was something a lot bigger, it would be a lot more noticeable. I did notice online, if anyone out there uses Xcode, you'll know that when you download an update to Xcode in the Mac App Store, it takes about 15 minutes afterwards to install. And apparently, it only takes about five minutes on these new Macs. And I don't know why they're decompressing a whole lot. It's like 13 gigabytes, and they're moving files. And this stuff that's going on on the SSD makes a difference. You'll notice it. Then, now, we've talked many times about how many browser tabs you have open and the fact that it runs your fan all the time. Well, the MacBook Air has no fan. And as I told you last week, you got to get one of these, Josh. You'll never have fan noise again. Yeah, I'm tempted. I actually noticed that in your article, you specifically mentioned that some people, including my co-host <laughs> of the podcast, suffer from frequent fan noise and would love to have a silent Mac. Yeah, okay, yes. that that's fair. That does describe me pretty well. Yeah, so... <laughs> I have 78 favorites in Safari currently, and okay. I decided to open all 78 of them in new tabs. That's a pretty demanding task in, in any browser on any Mac. Yeah. The thing, it didn't sweat. It was just, it, it's like it was smiling at me saying, okay, what else can you do? And there was a little bit of slowdown um, because a, a lot of these pages I have are open to login dialogues. So if I switch to a tab, it's got to display the dialogue. Then I have one password popping up, offering to insert the password, et cetera. So it was a little bit slow switching from tab to tab when I had a login dialogue. But I could go around to other apps and I could do whatever I want. And it wasn't beach balling. I expected that beach ball to go on for minutes as this was happening. This was something that I was really curious about because I, I know you mentioned that you were going to get the eight gig model. And, and I was like, no, no, like if you've got to get 16 gigs, like why would you get eight gigs? And it was really interesting to see what you said here. You said after all these tabs, 78 tabs had loaded, you, it was using about 11 gigs of Ram, which means that a lot of that was virtual memory. So you, right. you mentioned that you had seven gigs of virtual memory, but it showed 2.5 gigs of free Ram, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, so the way it's managing memory is instead of maxing out like it does on an Intel Mac, it's keeping a lot of RAM free, so whatever you do next is going to be quicker. And I think that's what's really noticeable. Um, and, and I figured I had 78 tabs open, and if it wasn't taxing the Mac, I should just open a bunch of apps. So I opened about 30 apps. I put a little screenshot in my article of the app switcher to see all the apps that were open. And again, Things got slower because a lot of them had splash screens and open dialogues. And when I went from one app to the next, um, you've got a, the splash screen would display and sometimes there's animation. Do you want to check for updates and all that? Cause these are, for many of these apps, it's the first time I launched them on this Mac, but I was able to switch apps and work in them without any difficulty. This was not slowing anything down. This is like 10 times what I would do on a normal Mac in my normal work. And. I'm I'm actually quite stunned. As you say, eight gigs of RAM, those of us who've been using Macs for a long time, just the idea of not paying the Apple tax of, you know, an extra 200 bucks for more RAM seems, you know, counterproductive. But here it seems to work really fine. 
Yeah, that's that's actually really impressive and, and very surprising to me. I, I wondered how Apple could even get away with offering a Mac that still had eight gigs and expect that people were going to have a good experience with that. But uh, it, it sounds like the way that everything is all closely integrated, um, you know, they don't have to worry about a lot of the historical things that you have a problem with, with typical, you know, Intel based uh, motherboards and everything like that, where you, everything's got to run through this, uh, uh, you know, input output bus. And that's a huge bottleneck apparently, because uh, seeing how fast everything runs on an M1 Mac, um, it's really impressive. I'm, I'm yeah. really surprised too. Everything here is on a chip. The whole system is on a chip. The RAM, the video RAM, um, all the different processors, like the security processor, the machine learning processor, it's all on the same chip. So you don't have that bottleneck of, a, of an input-output bus. Um, it's really high speed. And on top of that, the, the power, the battery life. Now, I've always taken with multiple grains of salt when Apple has said, you can get 10 hours of battery life on this, and I get three or four. And I figured, <laughs> well, that's just the way it is. And, and I think part of it's because I do make my screen relatively bright. Um, because my eyesight's okay. not great. So I've always given Apple like 10% for that. But I've even put a screenshot I took from Activity Monitor. At one point, um, I was writing the article and I had 53% left on the battery and it said six hours 35. And, you know, I could get through a day's work on this battery without charging. Previously, I'd always, if I was working in the morning, I'd always put it to charge at lunchtime to get a little boost. And now it's just, uh, it's... Imagine if you're out, say you're on a plane, you won't have to worry about charging it. Um, if you're out working in a coffee shop, whenever you can go back and do that, the same thing. This is going to make a big difference for a lot of people. You may not even need to carry an adapter with you if you know you're going out to visit a client. Um, as long as it's charged when you go out, you may not have to worry about that in the future. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I do like that uh, there's a lot better battery life on these. And, it, and again, this makes sense. It's because of how efficient everything is um, with, with it being all closely integrated that saves a lot of power. And uh, I actually would get probably a lot better battery life than you because I always leave my, my screen at the dimmest setting whenever I'm out in public, just to make sure I eke out that little extra bit of battery power. Yeah, but, but you won't need to anymore. That's the thing. Yeah, your your so habits won't. will change with this. That's what I find interesting. Now, this is not the time to imagine working on a laptop in a coffee shop, obviously. And I work from home and I rarely take it out with me. Again, it's my second computer at home. But for anyone who does... This will change the way you think about your computing. Um, if you don't have to worry about the fan, and so that's the thing. This the the efficiency of the system on a chip generates less heat, so they can actually not have a fan on the MacBook Air. Now they do have a fan on the MacBook Pro, and here's why: the processor is going to do certain things on the MacBook Air, and then it's going to slow down. So if you're trying to do something really you know, processor intensive generating 4K video, for example, um, it's going to get a little slower on the MacBook Air because it knows that it can't keep up when it gets to a certain temperature. On the MacBook Pro, you've got a fan, so you'll be able to get a little bit more out of it. And if you really do need the processor power on a laptop, then the MacBook Pro is probably for you. And the MacBook Air isn't. But you will have that fan. Will if Josh Wong gets one of them and opens up Chrome, will he have the same problem? You know, will his tabs turn the fan on? I don't know, but, it, you know, 
this is if you want a quiet Mac, this is the quietest you can get. Um, if you remember, the 12 inch MacBook also didn't have a fan. It was very slow and the battery life was terrible on that one. So the only other difference that I see between the two, between the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro, is the brightness of the MacBook Pro is 500 nits versus 400 for the MacBook Air. Now, I don't know exactly what a nit is, but (laughs) it seems, when I look at it at full brightness, it seems like, you know, if I was working outdoors, I might want more. Um, So that might be something to consider, that if you're going to choose between the two of them, you might want to see them both in person. And if you really do want the extra brightness, the MacBook Pro is probably a better deal. But come on, you don't need 16 gigs of RAM. You can get a a powerful computer now for $1,000. And what I'm thinking is we're used to changing computers in certain rhythms. Some people change every two or three years. Some keep them for five years. I think this series of new Macs is Macs that people are going to keep longer than ever before. Because it's not like in the past when Microsoft came out with a new version of Office and the the computer was too slow to to work, you know, smoothly with it. I think now it's going to be a long time before software gets up to the ability of this processor. Yeah, I I do hope that Apple will continue to release, um, you know, at least if not the latest operating system for these Macs for five plus years, then I, I hope that at least they'll release security updates for the last version that it can run for, for several years out. You know, one, one thing that we've sometimes seen in the past, and granted, this was a long time ago, the Intel transition uh, from PowerPC, um, but uh, sometimes... You know, in in the distant past, Apple may not have supported some of those Macs quite as long as I would have hoped. I remember writing an article after the Intel transition that some Mac models that had still been sold um, after the, the Intel transition had begun were now getting cut off from operating system updates only about five years after the time that they were last sold. And now they weren't going to be able to get any security updates, in fact. Um, and that's kind of a, a scary thing. Now, I don't. Apple has been getting a little bit better at this, and I I don't imagine that something like that is going to happen in this case. Um, but um, but I do I do hope that Apple will continue supporting these for a long time because this sounds like something that everyone who's wanting to get a new Mac should definitely consider an M1 Mac. Um, there are some very specific niche use cases where you might not want one, where you might want to stick with an Intel Mac still, but it, it's clear that this is the future that, you know, Apple has already said, we're planning on transitioning our whole line of Macs. And, uh, and we know that's happening over the next two years. So um, definitely time to consider getting an M1 Mac if you're thinking about an Intel Mac still. And remember that these M1 Macs are faster than any existing Intel Mac in single-core processor. We haven't seen the M2 yet, assuming they're going to call the M2 the processor they put, say, in the iMac and the larger MacBook Pro, or what's going to go into the Mac Pro and M3. We're we're talking about supercomputers here. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, technically everything's a supercomputer now by the old standard definition of supercomputer, but... But true, yeah. I mean, these are really, really fast machines. Um, that's probably, I would say, above all, that's the most impressive thing to me about M1 is that uh, being able to emulate an Intel processor as fast as, or in many cases, much faster than an Intel processor, I have no idea how Apple is able to pull this off other than just the tight integration of the hardware. But 
and, and really, I think it also speaks to the the power of their uh, their processing units as well. Um, this is really impressive, and I it kind of makes me wonder why Apple didn't do this sooner. I mean, I'm sure they've been working on this transition for quite quite some time, but um, yeah, this this was clearly the right direction for Apple to go. What, one last thing to point out is that this, even this cheapest Mac available has all the latest technologies. It's got Thunderbolt 3, it's got USB 4, it's got Wi-Fi 6. Now, I don't have anything that runs with USB 4 or Wi-Fi 6 yet, so they're really ahead of the curve on all of that as well. You can put a 6K monitor on it, I believe, and so it's not... It it's it sounds like a cheap computer, but in terms of the technology, it's really cutting edge. Anyway, right? You got to get one, Josh. We'll get rid of your fan noise. <laughs> you know, I, I I would think about it I, I, a little bit more seriously, except that we're we're planning on upgrading our home theater, and that's uh, it's going to be a, a fairly expensive project, I think. So we, my, my wife and I were kind of talking about that's that's I think our our main Christmas gift to each other is like let's let's put a bunch of money into upgrading our home theater system. Okay, but uh, if it weren't for that, yes, I know I'm so tempted. I might just break down and do it anyway. I don't know. It's so tempting to get a a MacBook Air. Okay. Until next week, stay secure. All right. Stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>